0: The Interchange is brought to you by Schneider Electric. So what's your risk exposure to increasing energy costs? Do you have a plan to lower that risk? Here's one way, a microgrid. A microgrid solution can optimize your distributed energy resources, helping unlock new revenue streams and avoid costly peak demand charges. Now you can reap the benefits of a microgrid with no upfront capital, through a new microgrid-as-a-service business model from Schneider Electric. Find out more about how it works at www.schneider-electric.us slash microgrid. Or if it's easier, just follow the link in the show notes of the podcast page. So what are you doing on December 12th and 13th? If you work in energy storage, you're interested in storage, or if storage touches your work in any way, I hope you're coming to GTM Storage Summit in San Francisco. This is our third storage summit, and our two previous years have sold out. Treat yourself or your employees to an early holiday gift. You get 20% off registration with the promo code PODCASTS at checkout. There are going to be a ton of newsworthy storylines to follow at the event. Global lithium-ion battery production is expected to surpass 200 gigawatt hours by 2020. Will other technologies catch up? More utilities around the country are deploying storage for various use cases. Are utilities outpacing regulators now? We'll also cover natural gas versus storage, storage business models, and -and up-and-coming state markets. We are bringing together the top players in this industry. Utilities, financiers, regulators, technology innovators, and storage practitioners for two full days of data-intensive presentations and analyst-led panel sessions. Plus, we'll have extensive high-level networking. It is what you've come to expect from GTM events. Sign up right now for Storage Summit and get 20% off with the promo code Podcasts. Go to greentechmedia.com slash events, and we'll see you in San Francisco. This is the interchange conversations on the global energy transformation from Green Tech Media. This week, a look at some of the most important stories in storage. Tesla builds the world's biggest battery ahead of schedule, but falls behind schedule delivering to the rest of the industry. Batteries put pressure on natural gas peakers, and New York's storage plans get stymied. I'm Stephen Lacey in Boston. My co-host Shale Khan is out there in Berkeley. He's the artist formerly known as the senior VP of GTM, and last Wednesday was his last day on the job before setting out on his next adventure, which will still include this podcast, I should remind you. Did you have a hard time figuring out what to do with all that free time,
1: Shale? Yeah, you know, I had Thanksgiving weekend, and then I woke up this Monday morning and started to record a podcast with you guys. So to be honest, it feels pretty similar so far. <laughs>
0: oh, you were probably just sitting there nervously playing with the on-off switch of your microphone waiting until we finally recorded another show.
1: Yeah, that's definitely true. I, I All I really want to do is be recording the interchange at all times. Could we just make this like a like a five or six hour weekly podcast? I think people would be into it. <laughs> One guy I could listen to for hours is Julian Specter. He's
0: our uh, staff writer and storage specialist. He's normally out there in Berkeley with shale, but he's on the East Coast this week, and Julian's here to discuss some of his recent reporting. Hey there. Hi, Steven.
2: It's uh, very exciting to be here. you know, I've actually been listening to this show uh, ever since you became my boss, and uh, it's it's good to be joining you on it now
0: uh so it is performance season julian and i'm, I'm doing my performance evaluation of you and i, I think instead of a, a standard written evaluation this is how we're going to do things on this podcast
2: i like it let's do it live
0: so in more serious news you uh published a story last week about tesla powerwall and Powerpack delivery delays this comes after widely publicized delays at the gigafactory for model 3 battery packs and um, you brought to the surface a trend that many have grumbled about for months, that Tesla stationary storage delays are hitting downstream installers and developers, which is causing them to delay projects or seek other suppliers. So what were you hearing that that sparked this story? Because it's it's pretty interesting. It's um been talked about around the industry for the last few months, but I think has recently come to a head given these high profile projects that Elon Musk has undertaken. So what were you hearing on the ground?
2: Right. Well, I, I was hearing from a lot of the the smaller folks who are who are actually installing and developing these uh, behind the meter storage projects that um, their customers wanted Tesla. They, they a lot of the customers are specifically asking for uh, power walls and power packs, um, and so the uh, installers you know try to get them and then uh, end up having to to wait uh, weeks to months in some cases uh, past the uh, delivery date that they were expecting. Um, and that actually uh, filters out I- into all these other uh, effects for the industry, because, um, you know, you-, you try to have a crew of-, of workers ready to install when you're expecting the battery. And if it's not there for three more months, you know, they, they go off and do other jobs in the meantime, and you have to find new people, retrain, spend this time really managing the project uh when nothing is happening because you're still waiting for the the batteries um and it's it's hard to quantify uh, the the full extent of those impacts but uh it it's certainly a, another hurdle that makes it hard to be one of these kind of first uh first line entrants into the the growing energy storage industry
1: and you know, one of the things I thought was interesting in the reporting that you did ultimately was that it, you know you mentioned that it's a bunch of the small installers, and I guess that's true in relative terms. But there were some big, sort of iconic projects that it looks like Tesla also either didn't win because it was unable to kind of get its sales act together, or had to delay. Like one of them that you mentioned was the Mandalay Homes example, which is now a, a kind of an iconic project it's like 2000 new build homes from this um, home builder mandalay that was announced not too long ago that son and the german energy storage company is going to do and 2000 homes just for context like the residential energy storage market in the u.s is still quite small so 2000 homes would be the size of that market in any given time period if not even larger than it and i think it's the second largest single kind of Deployment of of residential batteries that would happen if all of them that are planned go forward. So that's a big one. And apparently they first reached out to Tesla to try to work with Tesla and and got no response. And then ultimately went to Sonnen. Is that right?
2: Yeah, that's what the uh, the the leader of that that home builder told me when I when I was talking to him for that that story. Uh, and it's actually twenty nine hundred homes. Uh, so even bigger. Um, uh, yeah, so that's that's really quite a massive project in the uh, scale of this very very small industry so far. Um, now it's uh, it's hard to know exactly what happened kind of uh, in in Tesla's internal processes there. Um, you know the the company maintains that it it does follow up on on leads that come in, uh, but. But we know from the CEO of, of the home builder is, you know, they tried to reach out uh, in the kind of initial uh, aftermath of the the, the Powerwall announcement and, and just didn't hear back. And so they um, went looking
1: elsewhere. At least in recent months, I wonder how much of the delivery delays that you reported on can be traced back directly to this Australia project, you know, did, Elon Musk, via a series of tweets not so long ago, offered to deliver 100 megawatts, 129 megawatt hours of battery storage to uh, to South Australia in 100 days, which was, you know, would make it the biggest battery project in the world. Was going to be this big, iconic. Project for Tesla and for energy storage in general, and would have come with about a fifty million dollar penalty had they not delivered in a hundred days. Um, so they did, right? And the project just came online and is yeah, operating just, now. Just this
2: past week, yeah.
1: So that's a big deal, and it, it, I think, will do a lot to further the energy storage market and to further Tesla's ambitions within it. So it seems clear that that at least partially, what happened is that you know this project came about. And immediately, all attention necessary was dedicated to it, and all storage capacity necessary was dedicated to it. So, do you think that this is like a, a long-term phenomenon for Tesla, or was it tied to like this iconic project just sucking up all the oxygen in the company? Right.
2: That that's a very good question. Um, it, it I I don't think we can say that any delays that the the behind the meter installers are are. Uh, experiencing are a result of these kind of recent events. Uh, I mean, the Australia one clearly sucked away a lot of attention uh, and effort over the last few months. We also have uh, the Puerto Rico response to the hurricane there. Tesla has been sending a lot of batteries that way as have, it seems like just about everyone in the industry who makes uh, solar and and batteries. Um, I, I, I think there are sort of underlying, uh, supply chain challenges, uh, that were, um, relevant before those events came up and those events, uh, only exacerbated that. Um, but it, it's, uh, it's interesting to think about the, the meaning of this, uh, South Australia project. Cause, um, you know, it, one way to look at it would be it's kind of this one-off opportunistic, uh, you know, moment. You know, you make a big bet on Twitter, and all of a sudden, have to put everything else on hold to to follow through on it. Um, but I was talking with uh, Ravi Mangani uh, from GTM Research, or the storage director there, and he pointed out, you know, there have been two of these in the past year. So we we it's it's hard to uh, remember at this point. But January was when the Aliso Canyon procurements came online in California, uh, and that was a rapid-fire response in a, in just a few months to a, a grid emergency. In this case, it was a major natural gas leak that that created these local reliability concerns in, in Southern California. Um, so, you know, if you have two major grid emergencies per year uh, and you get to do some very big lucrative projects for it, um, you know, may, maybe we shouldn't write that off as kind of a, a one-off thing that, that won't be repeated. And, and it's, it's worth saying, you know, they got to deploy so many batteries in this one, a hundred megawatts, 129 megawatt hours. Uh, so that clearly trounces, you know, all the, the little bits here and there that you would otherwise be, be selling to these, um, you know, more local kind of commercial or residential uh, deals. So and
1: in, in fact, uh, Tesla deployed a grand total of 110 megawatt hours of stationary storage, uh in total in the third quarter of this year. So that Australia project alone was larger than a full quarter's worth of all other deliveries for the company. Right, right. So it's looking like
0: this is actually a business model for Tesla and consistent with the way that they launch projects and products in the first place. I mean I mean I've the, heard uh, Musk is is always the one setting
1: these ambitious timelines. I've heard, uh, from a few people actually internally at Tesla and people used to work at Tesla, that this is not uncommon for Tesla in general, whether it be in the stationary storage business or in the electric vehicle business or or whatever it might be, which is basically, you know, they have this, this longer term plan that they are working toward, but Elon Musk sees an opportunity has an incredible knack for sort of utilizing marketing as a means to make business work. Um, Seize that opportunity, seizes it. And this can all happen over the course of, you know, like 20 minutes on Twitter and totally sort of redirects the attention of the company internally to making that happen. And, and you know it causes some frustration and consternation internally for people who then have to redirect all their efforts. Um, but I think a lot of them also recognize that this seems to be a pretty effective strategy. And I think also in stationary storage, as we're talking about, it may really be for for a couple of years as these things come up, you kind of have to seize the opportunity as the market is scaling otherwise. So I'm torn between thinking, you know this is sort of a dangerous strategic move because it's obviously hurting Tesla's downstream channel partners. And saying no, this is you know for the sake of the bigger picture, actually this made a lot of sense
2: right it's it's hard to compare those two um, scales you know you have this completely massive grid level scale in Australia and if you if you have to sacrifice a few uh, well timely delivery of a few of these very small uh, local projects um, you know, I, I could see a, a, a justification for that in this kind of grand uh, strategy of of the business.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's this bigger question, like, why does Tesla even care about all these other installers? If it's got enough demand to soak up its current supply, and it can build in, and it can like get rid of all that supply in one project, why does it even care about the rest of the industry? As long as it's taking care of Solar City and taking care of itself. Well,
1: taking care right, of Solar but that, City. But that does make a. <laughs> Sorry, go uh, ahead, go ahead, Julian.
2: Well, that does make a, a, a challenge, though, for the the people who are on the front line of the storage industry, and you know they're they're in a predicament where uh, the Tesla's products are so popular, and the and the price point is is very competitive. So they they get all these requests that the customers want that, and then. You know, when they try to actually get it, it it, it ends up being much harder to deliver.
0: And, and that's why I asked that question. So this gets at the question of why this matters. So what are the impacts to these downstream installers if they can't get the batteries that everyone's asking for? Like, why does it matter that Tesla is not servicing some of these commercial or residential or for that matter, utility scale developers?
2: right uh so the in aggregate um it'll materialize as a a just higher cost of doing business um you know if if a project takes a few extra months to complete it's going to cost more than if it it gets wrapped up in a in a shorter time span uh and and then there's the um reputational impact as well you know if if uh we're trying to well the 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 folks who who are trying to make storage into a real, uh, thriving industry, they want to deliver and and make their customers happy. And, you know, if, if a customer is very excited about being an early adopter, they want to get a battery in their house and they're told, okay, well, maybe we could do this in six months, but maybe it'll be nine months or or a year. Uh, who knows, you know, that makes it a much harder sell, uh, than, you know, if if you can promise a, a quick and, and timely turnaround, um, and it's worth noting the the actual installation of these is usually quite fast. Um, so uh, you know, it, it could be it could be a, a much quicker turnaround provided the the parts are all ready to go.
1: I also would think it'd be important to point out this is this is an interesting challenge for Tesla because. The structure of their business is so different in in stationary storage than it is in electric vehicles. Like they've gone to such lengths in their vehicle business to control the entire value chain, right? They, They basically went to war in a bunch of states in order to skip the dealerships and be able to sell directly. And in the case of their stationary storage business, they're doing exactly the opposite, right? They seem to ideally want to just sell batteries and let other developers and installers install them. But the challenge with that is that there's another player now involved in the process who, you know, has their own timelines, their own customers, their own relationships that they need to maintain. And so where Tesla otherwise might be able to rely Purely upon its reputation, and you know, ha- is is very accustomed to delivery delays with cars, but it, it manages it itself partially through the just brand value. Um, it's harder to do that when you've got somebody, an intermediary, essentially sitting in between, who's actually trying to develop the project and making its own commitments. So it's going to be a challenge. Tesla is going to have to manage as the stationary storage business continues to grow, because I don't see any indications that Tesla wants to. Continue to develop and install projects forever.
0: So, I don't, I have not been reporting on this, but I do have a couple of data points given conversations that I had with folks before Musk announced this Australia project. And I did hear from a couple of installers who said it was really difficult to get Powerwall products. And so, we did hear problems about. Delays and difficulties working with Tesla before Elon Musk jumped on Twitter and promised this 100-day battery development. Is that is that consistent with your reporting, Julian?
2: Yeah, yeah. No, I. I mean, it. The narrative of uh, this is purely a result of these recent projects. Uh, I. I don't really buy that. You know, I, this this was a, a developing issue that's been going on for for a while before that.
1: Yeah, I also think you mentioned that the Puerto Rico piece as well a couple of times. And while I do think that the South Australia delivery probably had something to do with delays elsewhere and is a good reason for that, I have a really hard time getting there with Puerto Rico. Just to preface, I mean I obviously I think it's fantastic that Tesla and many others are, are deploying batteries and solar in Puerto Rico. To help out it's a humanitarian crisis of a ridiculous magnitude for the u.s that said i do not buy the argument that puerto rico is causing delays for other customers in any significant fashion i mean south australia again 100 megawatts 129 megawatt hours you know that's equivalent to tens of thousands of power walls or thousands of power packs uh what we're seeing in puerto rico numbers in the hundreds of individual, and that's Tesla's said that they're delivering hundreds of power walls to Puerto Rico. Not to mention the fact that Tesla is not the only one doing that. I mean, you see lots of others, Sun and included. You know, Sunrun is deploying down there, and and I don't really hear anybody else using Puerto Rico as an as, a, as an excuse to say that they're delaying other things. I I'd love to be proven wrong here, but. I have a hard time imagining that that's that's truly the reason and if that is the reason then it speaks to sort of the fragility of Tesla's delivery model. That something like this that dedicates a few extra hundred uh, batteries and probably some small number of people would cause such a disruption to their ability to deliver to their other customers.
2: Right. And I think it speaks to the really still young state of the supply chain for, for the storage industry. Um, you know, it, you should be able to uh, respond to crises like that and, and send humanitarian aid without throwing off, uh, you know, your your regular order of business. Um, but, you know, again, the, the factory is still getting up and running. You know, it's not... Uh, working at full capacity yet and um i mean the company the company did confirm that um they're still ramping the powerwall production and and that they, they need to put out more to meet demand and um you know so they'll be
0: working on that over the next several months the interchange is brought to you by schneider electric Are you considering a microgrid to improve your facility's resiliency, efficiency, and sustainability? If so, it's important to engage a trusted partner like Schneider Electric to help you meet your energy goals and your budget. Schneider Electric will guide you through the most important questions. How would your business and employees be impacted if your facility lost power for a week or more? Are you maximizing your distributed energy resources to unlock new revenue streams and avoid costly peak demand charges? Do you need an easy way to report on your sustainability performance? Microgrids are a natural extension of Schneider Electric's 100-year legacy in the power distribution and energy management business. Learn more about how Schneider Electric is developing new technologies, financing models, and partnerships to maximize your microgrid investment. Go to www.schneider-electric.us/microgrid. That's www.schneider-electric.us slash microgrid, or just follow the link in the show notes of your podcast player or on the website. Let's turn our attention now to the emerging battle between natural gas peaker plants and lithium-ion batteries. This is playing out right now in California, where NRG is considering whether to pull the plug on the controversial 262-megawatt Puente gas plant after regulators signaled that they would reject it. Puente has been at the center of controversy since it was proposed in 2014 for mostly environmental reasons. Attention turned to the project once again when a GTM analysis, a collaboration between Shale and Julian, showed that California regulators were using outdated cost figures for lithium-ion batteries when considering alternatives. Shale, take us back on this one. When did the cracks start forming in the Puente plans?
1: Well, I think there had been some opposition to this Puente project for Years. It had been in the planning stages for years. Certainly, local environmental groups had expressed a fair bit of opposition. And there had been some uh, California advocacy organizations that had also pointed out, you know, that it might not be the most economic or the smartest thing to build this new gas peaker in California. When we learned about it, um, someone pointed out to us that this. Gaspeaker project was about to go through basically the final stages of approval from the California Energy Commission, which offers the final approvals for projects like this, and that in that final stage of approval, the Energy Commission had requested a study from the California ISO, the system operator in the state, um, about whether it would be possible to use what's called preferred resources, which is a California term that basically refers to renewables and distributed energy. And the question was, can you use preferred resources instead of meeting the local capacity needs using this gas peaker? And the California ISO study came back and said, technically, you can. Um, we've come up with a mix of resources, mostly battery storage, with durations ranging from, I think, 30 minutes up to like nine hours. So uh, uh, an array of different batteries combined with some solar and some demand response. And using all that stuff, you could technically meet the needs that this gas project is serving. However, they had a a very short sort of throwaway bit in there that was like, but it would come at a much, much higher cost than what is being proposed for this gas plant. And so we took a look at those cost numbers. um, And we discovered that basically, the Cal ISO study was using extremely dated cost figures, in fact, both for solar and for storage. But because most of the cost was coming from the storage, we focused on that. The cost figures that they were using were were clearly from a few years ago. And a few years may not be long in terms of cost dynamics in many markets, but in the energy storage market, as we've talked about before, um, that's basically an eternity. So they were relying upon these really dated cost figures in order to determine whether you might be able to meet the needs of this resource using storage and demand response and solar rather than gas. So Julian and I put together a bit of analysis looking at what the costs would have to be for storage to compete um, and whether it might be worth looking at that in a little bit more detail before offering the final approvals for the gas plant.
2: Yeah. And, and things uh, really picked up uh, from there. So uh, the, the, Cal ISO, which had done this study came back in the in the proceeding and uh basically said yes this was a a very high level analysis and really the the way to know for sure how much storage would cost relative to the gas plan is uh, run a new request for offers and let industry uh come and and bid their their most competitive bids and and see what comes out of that um and uh shortly after that oh, they they also another important point was they said it, in their estimation, would be feasible to run an expedited RFO and get uh, the needed solution in place um, by the the deadline when when um, the, they need to meet local reliability in this uh, grid around Oxnard. So uh, that allowed the regulators who were investigating the the Puente um, you know proposal to say uh, in in a pretty unusual move they they sort of released a preview of their decision and said this isn't our final decision but we intend to reject the gas plant uh, and we are saying this now because we want to let everyone who needs to know so that they can start working on alternatives um, so uh that uh, was quite a surprise. Um, And what followed was actually NRG uh, requested a suspension of their application. Um, And basically they were saying, uh, let's not finalize the, the, you know, the ruling on, on whether or not our our plant gets, gets permitted. Uh, Let's put that on hold and run this RFO, see what the other options are. Uh, and, uh, you know, then we can go from there. Uh, and that, that caused a bit of a, a conflict because the environmentalists and clean energy folks and and even the city where this would be are, really don't want this gas plant. Uh, so they were arguing for, uh, let's just resolve this now. Let's get closure and then move on and, and, you know, figure out the, the better alternatives. Uh, but instead, the, the regulators actually granted that suspension. So the, the proceeding is is on hold until May, and that allows six months to actually run this RFO and see how storage performs.
1: Can you actually go into a little bit more detail on why the local environmental groups are opposed to this? I think people who haven't paid a ton of attention may be thinking of natural gas, mostly from its greenhouse gas emissions perspective, wherein it's better, a lot better than coal, but obviously not as good as... Renewables that are emissions free or nuclear, um, but this opposition had very little to do with that, as I understand it. What was the opposition from the environmental standpoint?
2: Right, it, it uh, has more to do with the local uh, concerns. Well, I mean, certainly the climate change is is part of it, and you know they're they're arguing that uh, given the backdrop that the state of California has a, a legally binding policy goal of of you know addressing climate change and reducing carbon emissions. Uh, they're they're saying it would be irresponsible to to build new carbon emission uh, you know producing infrastructure that'll be around for decades from now. So so the the climate change aspect is important, um, but there's also the local concerns. So um, this uh, stretch of coastline was really just gobbled up by power plants and, and industrial facilities uh, many years ago, and and so for the the city of Oxnard um they they want their beach back there there's this idea that um you know they they don't want to get saddled with another power plant that takes up space on on this uh otherwise beautiful coast and and uh you know keeps it off limits for for another s- several decades uh, and and then the the local you know particulate matter uh, and and those sorts of emissions are certainly not a welcome uh and and so really the the arguments that the opponents of the plan were saying is uh, we don't need this uh, it's a it's a expensive asset uh, that'll be stuck here for a long time and and we think we can do it more cheaply and cleanly with these uh, you know batteries and and solar alternatives.
0: Well, I'll tell you why I'm really interested in this story. And that's because this is thrusting storage into the middle of this environmental justice conversation. Um, Historically, a lot of people have been turned off by environmental groups because they're seeking to shut things down and there might not be an economic alternative. And now they can come in and say, why are you building this gas plant when we can deploy some batteries to make up for it? And you have this n- this new tool um, in the in the environmental movement and so storage is becoming a more important conversation not just uh, in you know upkeeping the grid or smoothing out intermittent renewables but as an alternative to polluting power plants in local communities
2: that's totally true and and it's pretty stunning how fast this happened because uh, it was just you know a few years ago that uh, Southern California Edison was looking around for local capacity options and the gas plant was really all they, all they had to, to go with. And, uh, you know, in just a couple years after Aliso Canyon uh, and, and, you know, now we've seen the, the Tesla one in Australia, all of a sudden storage is a, a, a certified, you know, possibility for, for dealing with these things in a way that does not produce local emissions, local pollution uh, does not uh, suck up a lot of water Um, And can be really just slipped into fairly dense urban areas without uh, significant repercussions.
0: Of course, it does matter from a broader grid mix perspective, what you are uh, charging and discharging. So hopefully the grid becomes cleaner and you're not just shifting those emissions elsewhere
1: right not to mention round trip efficiency you do lose some of the power in the process of charging and discharging but of course that gets taken into account or should get taken into account in all these analyses of costs i think it's really interesting because in my mind this example this puente project and and maybe a couple of others that are sort of like it i think are the opening salvos in what's going to be about a decade long battle between battery storage and gas peaking. We've been doing a bunch of analysis on this at, at GTM for the past few months. We did one whole piece on South Australia, sort of setting aside this specific Tesla project in South Australia. There's a bunch of need for for new peaking resources over the next decade or two. And we were looking at the economics of solar plus energy storage versus a gas peaker. And it's it's pretty clear that by the middle of the next decade, we're going to see Energy storage plus solar as a as a peaking resource being cheaper than a gas plant. Meanwhile, we're starting to do this analysis for the U.S. as well, and there are you know we've identified about 20 gigawatts of gas peakers that are you know, either planned or probably going to be required in the U.S. over the next decade. And I think that there's a good chance that over half of that will ultimately be under threat by energy storage. Um, and it sort of depends on those lines cross and what you bake into the assumptions about the cost of storage, the cost of gas, what you're charging with, and so on and so forth. But it's very clear that um, there's a point not that far in the future when it may just not make sense to build a gas peaker anymore and, and storage may win. And that will have a big impact, I think, on the generators, those who build gas peaking plants um, it won't have the biggest impact on the gas supply mix in total because you know you deliver a relatively small amount of natural gas to peakers because they have such a low capacity factor but you know it's sort of stage one in energy storage is sort of domination of the the low carbon and ultimately zero carbon grid so it's an important trend to watch totally and and this is
2: really the, the first crystal clear uh, case study of that because uh, you know, people like AES Energy Storage, these sort of big utility scale developers. They they've been talking about this for a long time. Of storage will replace gas peakers. You know, once we have this uh, this asset uh, that. Uh, can be you know nimble and you can tailor it to exactly what you need and add more later if if your peak you know capacity demands increase uh, they in, in their mind there's no reason to keep building these gas plants uh, but we hadn't seen uh, a case where the storage could go head-to head with a gas plant and and beat it out for uh the contract so you know puente it's it's not resolved yet but uh, it looks pretty Pretty clear that all the stakeholders are, are agreed that this RFO should happen, and storage will get uh, its chance to to compete. And uh, so this this could be the first time where where we see the the gas plant lose and the and the batteries take its place.
0: And now we have more data points, right? You've got these mega projects, Tesla's um, you know ambitious hundred megawatt project that was completed in record time, and you've got all these. Uh, local capacity requirement procurements to make up for the Aliso Canyon shortfall. And all these projects were done in record time. And so now we've proven that you can deploy storage to make up for capacity shortfalls on the grid and you can do it very, very quickly. So, um, you know, it's not just about the economics, it's about the the time to build as well, which of course influences economics.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, no way you can build a new gas plant from scratch in four months, like even just siting and permitting uh, takes considerably longer. And, and then there's a question of where can you even put it? You know, if a lot of the Aliso Canyon ones were really in, uh, say, suburban San Diego uh, and, and the LA vicinity, and, you know, try, try sticking a, a gas plant in the middle of, of that kind of populated area. It's not going to be easy.
0: This conversation about gas peakers is particularly relevant to your reporting on New York, Julian, which I want to shift to now, because in the next five years, there are going to be a few gigawatts of peaking capacity that will hit retirement age in the state. And, you know, that's right in the middle of this messy energy reform effort. And, you know, obviously batteries can be a good replacement, but that's if the state can get its act together. You have state politics, wholesale market rules, And local regulations all working together to form some pretty intense headwinds for storage out there. So can New York turn things around just as this peak capacity shortfall looms? Um, set the stage for us in New York. Why is the state, um, you know, behind, you know, this is a state that's trying to lead the way in the energy transition, but it's, it's falling behind in storage. Why is that?
2: Right. So, um, I, I did some reporting on this really really, to try to unpack this conundrum of uh, you, you have the, the New York REV initiative is explicitly trying to um, reform the grid so that it can host more clean energy and uh, get better utilization out of the existing assets. Um, those are two things that we, we know already energy storage does very well, um, but in the years that that rev has been going on um we've seen very little storage deployed actually uh the the tally i got from uh gtm research was uh, a total of around four megawatts 10 megawatt hours deployed uh in the in the years since rev has been going on um that's that's really not much You, you even have um places like Arizona, you know, where you you have no, uh, real policy driver for let's, let's have more clean energy and, and have these, these goals, but, um, market driven choices from folks like, uh, Arizona public services uh, deploying more, more storage, uh, than we've seen in New York. Um, so I wanted to unpack that. And there, there are quite a few things going on there. Um, one is that, uh, the philosophy of Rev, they they don't want to lead with um, a, a kind of mandated top down, you know, just do this thing that we told you to do mentality. Um, and so they're, they're they're trying very hard to to create these new market structures where you know you find ways for the utility to get paid for saving money for ratepayers. Um, and you know, you can imagine it it takes longer to figure out these whole new market structures than to just slap a mandate on and say, you know, go buy this thing." um It, it gets a little confusing though, because they did include a a renewable energy mandate, you know, fifty percent that the governor Cuomo uh, is very proud of and talks a lot about. but uh, for whatever reason they they don't want to extend that approach to storage, even though actually the the legislature. Unanimously passed a a bill to uh, enact a storage target. Um, so that that is uh, that passed in the summer. Um, it was actually end of June, and as far as I know, still hasn't been signed by the governor. Uh,
0: yeah, uh, can we just stop there? Like, I'm very confused by the politics of this. So I understand that. You know Richard Kaufman, who is really all about market animation, is opposed to some kind of storage mandate. But it's confusing to me because the state has a renewable energy mandate. It's setting targets for offshore wind. Um, it, it is through the REV process mandating that utilities lay out a couple of storage uh, test projects. So like you have mandates swirling around. Why not just create a new mandate for storage. I'm not saying that's the best way to do it. I'm saying it just seems very inconsistent with all the other energy politics in New York.
2: Yeah, it's it's confusing. I I think the um I mean the the argument I was hearing from Kaufman who's the the energies are there uh was basically they they don't want to be picking the technology um and so I th- it, it appears that there's concern that um you know, even saying you should do storage as as the solution here, uh, you know, as opposed to, say, demand response or uh, other kinds of distributed resources, uh, they, it sounds like they don't want to, to take that step, that that's too far for them.
1: But it's a weird... I thought that the reporting you did on this was really amazing because it, it unearthed the fact that there's basically universal agreement in the state of New York among policymakers and regulators and um, and even the utilities, I think that, that they want more energy storage. There's also a lot of activity surrounding that, you know, there's rate design work in the, the VDER proceeding where they're trying to figure out what the value of, resources should be. So this would be behind the meter energy storage tied to solar or something like that. There's legislation, like you said, there's this bill that passed unanimously through the state legislature that the governor has then never requested. So it's never gone to his desk for signature, even though it was unanimously approved in the legislature. There've been all these studies that have been done, one for New York City, looking at, as Stephen mentioned, these peakers that are going to retire. One that NYSERDA, the State Energy Research and Development Authority, has done looking at how to promote storage so there's been all this activity and then it's just kind of led to very little and it's hard to figure out whether that is a case of sort of bureaucracy gone wrong where it's just you know everything is a little bit overly complicated there and nobody can agree on the right way to do the thing that they all want to do or whether there's something underlying it that you know just this obsession with markets where if you don't get it in a market-based mechanism then there's no point in doing it or something even more insidious. Do you have any sense of whether there's something, something underlying all of these sort of slow moving failures to enact anything um, or whether it's just kind of an amalgamation of little complexities?
2: I, there there is a running theme that the utilities uh, at the very least don't seem to be jumping at the opportunity to um, take storage on and, and start deploying it. Um, And you know, the, the REV process is very, um, in some ways, friendly to the utilities in that they, they really don't want to drive them out of business. When, when the, the leaders of the REV talk about it, it's uh, how, can we, how can we help these utilities reinvent themselves to keep making money in, in this new era of a, of a smarter grid? Um, but, it, you know, as part of REV, they were all supposed to start experimenting with storage um and the progress on that was so slow that the uh, the public service commission in March actually had to explicitly order them to to get started. Um the the exact quote from the order was the commission finds that the utilities have thus far advanced a limited number and variety of energy storage projects, uh, and it it goes on to say they have to build two, uh, each by the end of 2018. So, so, you know, they were, they were moving so slowly on that, that they had to be explicitly reprimanded by the regulators.
1: I wonder how much of this we can lay at the feet of the REV initiative. Cause I, I it feels to me like part of what's happening is that REV is this overarching umbrella vision, um, for the future of electricity markets in new york and that includes energy storage within it you know the idyllic vision of rev the outcome of rev would include valuing whatever resource might be placed on the grid and whatever place it is is um hosted according to what it can offer to the grid And so energy storage should be just as much a component of that as any other technology. And so you could make an argument that, look, if you let the REV initiative play out, then energy storage is naturally going to have a home in the state of New York. And you don't need to be building all these mandates and other sort of ancillary policies and in support of energy storage in the meantime, that I think, you know, runs counter to what's happening in the market today, which is that REV is taking a lot longer than anticipated and is becoming more complex than I think was originally envisioned. And so in the meantime, while the REV initiative is playing itself out, um, there's just not a whole lot happening otherwise. And so if you just lay all of your hopes uh, for the future of energy storage on the feet of REV, you're going to end up not having much of an energy storage market for a while.
2: That's that's true, and it, it gets to that kind of realism versus idealism question, um, which is ironic because Rev is often framed as this uh, kind of savvy, you know, market-driven alternative to to California's more top-heavy uh, mandate approach, uh, but. Um, you know, we, we've seen that mandates are successful in the short term at spurring storage investment, which seems like it would be good for, for the goals that Rev has. And, uh, you know, so far they, they've avoided going that route because they want to maintain the purity of the, the market driven mechanisms that haven't really uh, achieved results for storage yet.
1: So stepping back from just this New York example, so now we've talked about Tesla and what's going on there. We've talked about the Puente project in California and storage versus gas, and we've talked about New York's kind of struggles to get an energy storage market off the ground. I wonder what you guys think these three stories in aggregate tell us about the state of energy storage in the U.S. Like, Are they all indicative of the immaturity of the market as it exists today, or do they all give you hope about the... Future of the market, you know, what are we to take from these together?
2: Yeah, well, there's there's a lot uh, from this year that you could be hopeful about. Uh, I mean, having Elisa Canyon, having the the South Australia thing, are are big achievements that you know any any time uh a grid crisis pops up in the future like I, I don't think there's a question that storage will be um, on the table as a potential solution and that wasn't true even a year ago um so that's a that's a major step forward for the industry um puente is is similarly a step forward I mean it's not it's not complete yet but just the fact that we're having this conversation about, uh storage potentially taking the place of a gas peaker plant like that's that's incredible it, that's never happened before um but i think the new york story um is a, a cautionary tale and it, and it's important to remember that um the development of this market so far is very uh regionalized you know and and it's not an accident that lisa canyon and the puente case are both in california which is very intentionally laid the policy groundwork and the regulatory groundwork so that when these emergencies arise, it can kind of jump into action and uh, get you know it knows it knows what to do with storage in a way that a uh, few other jurisdictions do. Um, I think with New York, we're we're seeing that uh, even though storage has a, a high potential to help, uh, so far. The, the 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 real accomplishments there have been very small scale pilots and you know inclusion of storage in broader uh, non wireless alternatives um, and you know it it it's it's a much more limited potential compared to what it, it could be doing and and the stakes are even higher for New York City where um, you know the fire code there from the the fire department has basically prevented any large scale storage development. At the same time, the city has these incredible local capacity needs, uh, which are being met by very dirty old peakers. And so, you know, there's there's actually a human health uh, stakes here. If if they can crack the code of getting storage deployed, uh, that means shutting down these sixty year old plants that are spewing pollution into you know low income and minority neighborhoods. Uh, So there's strong strong incentives to to figure it out, but. Uh, you know, that hasn't been enough so far. And, and the will to revise the grid hasn't been enough so far.
0: Sounds like the plot of a Dickens novel, Misery, Hope, A Cautionary Tale, and Some Dirty Old peakers.
2: I like it. I like it. I'll, <laughs> I'll start working on that as, as my next side project.
0: I mean, clearly, it's a sign of both the immaturity of the market when you have these supply issues and these one-off projects that grab everybody's attention. But as we see with uh, these examples of the the Puente peaker plant and other peaker plants in South Australia and throughout Australia, clearly the market is maturing pretty quickly.
1: Yeah, I think everything you guys have said is right. I think it speaks to two things about energy storage as we watch this market play out the first is just the enormous wealth of opportunities that a battery has in terms of values that it can provide to the grid you know you've got the south australia example that is a relatively short duration slightly over 1 hour duration massive deployment that's separate from like a peaking resource which is probably going to be 3 or 4 hour duration that the the, the Um, example of the Puente project when they did that analysis as I said they had batteries that were 30 minute duration batteries that were 9 hour duration they're all providing sort of different bits of value and that's true in the complexity in New York as well one of the issues there being um, figuring out how to value this stuff so energy storage in one sense because it is so versatile um, just has like endless possibilities for the grid and we're just starting to unlock different bits of them one by one in different parts of the world and so that's That, to me, makes the case that uh, the near-term, say five-year and even medium-term, maybe 10-year future of energy storage may end up being even more amazing and glimmering and substantial than we anticipate it to be. On the other hand, it also speaks to the complexity of getting any of this stuff done. In every single one of these cases, there's some nuance to... How to value the resources, what they can do. Like you said, fire code issues, you can run across all sorts of other challenges. So, you know, there's this constant battle between the market opportunity in theory and the market opportunity in reality. And the extent to which that sort of divide gets bridged, I think, tells you how fast energy storage is going to grow.
0: I know that the comparison between storage, battery storage, and solar can get a bit tiresome. But what you just laid out there, shale is a perfect example of why storage is following in the footsteps of solar because all those issues we've been talking about, solar dealt with in the early and mid two thousands and has since worked out in you know a pretty major way.
1: I actually don't agree with that. I, uh, I really, I've made, I've made the solar comparison as well. With energy storage, and the more that I use it, the less that I like it. (laughs) Especially because, especially because uh, all these complexities that I'm talking about, solar did not have to deal with all these things, right? Solar is very simple. It just delivers electricity. Hold on, you have
0: you have homeowners association problems, local permitting issues, fire code issues. How are these? I mean, they might not be the exact same policy problems that storage faces, but you're talking about a lot of m- local regulatory minutia that solar had to work through.
1: Those are similar, I'll give you that. I mean, they're you know not the same fire code issues and things like that, but certainly there's local permitting, and you can even make an argument that interconnection issues were relatively similar. I think storage has an additional entire layer of complexity that it has to overcome, which is the fact that the, the resource is driven by its use, Right, solar. You know exactly what it's going to be delivering. It will be delivering electrons to the grid, dumb electrons to the grid at the time when um, the sun is out. You can do mess with it a little bit with smart inverters and things like that, which is happening now. But in the early days of solar, what you needed to do was figure out how to compensate those electrons um, and how to ensure that there was enough in the in the economics so that the project would get built and financed. Energy storage has all of that, but it also has how is this battery going to be charged and discharged? What is it going to be charging with? How much do you take that into account? How does the the charging and discharging patterns impact the value to the grid, the value to whoever the customer is, whether it be behind the meter or a utility or a grid operator? Um, all of those challenges are an additional layer that solar never had to deal with. So while I do think that you can look at the sort of cost declines of solar and say you know what i do think the batteries are going to follow a similar trajectory you 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 know you're going to see rapid cost declines and it's a nice heuristic to use to talk about that i think the market issues are just a completely different set of challenges and and in some ways better for storage because there are more different ways that you can use it. Um, and so you can have multiple markets existing simultaneously next to each other, but in some ways far more complicated just because of the multiple use cases and ways that you can utilize a battery.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I definitely agree that the, the complexity of the product makes it harder to sell in some ways, but it, it does also open up opportunities that solar couldn't have and, and kind of, um, combinations of, of resources that, that are new, you know, we've been seeing uh, storage placed not just with wind and, and, uh, solar, but with, you know, gas plants and like, you, you, you know, why you wouldn't make a case for like sticking solar on, on gas plants. Uh, but in, in the case of storage, it can actually help those resources work better and and last longer. Um, so, yeah, it's harder to sell. It's harder, you know, just the the nuances of charging and discharging, and um, you know where it's getting the energy from. Definitely more complicated than than the solar. But um, hopefully that can that can open up other opportunities too.
0: Well, that is Julian Spector. He is our staff writer and our storage expert here on the editorial team at, at GTM. We I just love reading your writing and, and editing it. It's a true treat and thanks for coming on and talking about some of the big stories you're working on.
2: Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Um, I'll uh, keep you posted on what I find next.
0: Alright, Shale, good times. I will see you at the Storage Summit. I'll see both of you at the Storage Summit out there in uh, San Francisco. We've got a an intro that we're developing that will be a live version of the interchange mixed with a presentation from Shale, so that, so that should be a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward to that.
0: And looking forward to having you in my fine city. <laughs> With Shail Khan and Julian Spector, I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Interchange Energy Conversations from Green Tech Media. We'll catch you next time.